warm welcome to our listeners. This is Reflections from Budapest, Religion, State and Society podcast, where we look at issues of religious conflict, religious violence and reconciliation. My name is Sharon Sugar. I am a researcher at the Danube Institute. This is the new episode in our series called Judaism and Anti-Semitism in Hungary. The series follows the publication of our two-volume book titled Anti-Semitism in Hungary, Appearance and Reality, which was published by Helena Historica Press in the US. Our special guest today is Rabbi Robert Flörig, who is the Chief Rabbi of Hungary and the Chief Rabbi of the Dohainstreet Synagogue since 1993. In 1991, he joined the Ministry of Defense, where he first was a religious expert, then in 1995 he was appointed as a brigadier general. He became the chief rabbi of Hungary in 2021. Let me introduce my colleagues, Professor Jeffrey Kaplan, a distinguished fellow at the Danube Institute, and Tomáš Orbán, a senior research fellow at the Danube Institute. Thank you so much for joining us, Rabbi Frölich. Thank you for inviting me. To begin with, can you tell us about your background and how you came to the rabbinate? What do you want to know? <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Everything. Time's too short. <laughs> so is life. There's time. Uh, so, there's nothing, uh, not much to say. I, I came from uh, a religious family. My father was uh, a baker in the Dobbs Street. He owned the only kosher bakery in Eastern Middle Europe at this time. So, uh, I learned in the Jewish secondary school. This was the only Jewish school in that time in, in Hungary. And then I joined to the rabbinical seminary. Uh, I was attracted to the greatness of the late Professor Alexander Scheiber, who was the director of the rabbinical seminary. And I finished my study there, studies there in uh, 1990. I became a rabbi, and I work as a rabbi since then. <laughs> Thank you. And could you tell us about how you did become the first Jewish military chaplain? Oh, right time, right place. Uh, I, I, uh, I was in uh, the headquarters of the Jewish community in the Sheep Street when I met the chief rabbi of hunger of the time, Rabbi Landesman, he, who lives now in uh, Toronto, Canada. And I was asked if I want to be a chaplain. And the, the first thing that came into my mind was uh, Otto Katz from the novel Schweik as a chaplain. So I, I thought and thought to myself that if this is uh, what a chaplain uh, looked like, I want to be this kind of chaplain. So I said yes. The right place, the right time. I joined to the... the Ministry of Defense in 1991, and we built up the chaplaincy until 1994. And I became the first uh, Jewish uh, chaplain since uh, I think 51 or two. We previously had as our guest um, from the Orthodox community, Rabbi Baruch Oberlander. And one of the questions we asked him for our listeners is if he could tell us, distinguish for us the difference between orthodoxy and neolog Judaism. Could I ask you the same question from your own perspective? Yeah, uh, I'm sure that uh, Rabbi Oberlander taught, talked uh, about his opinion by the point of view of the Chabad Lubavitch. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I, I uh, 
try to make my point from another point of view. So the neolog movement, uh, which started at the end of uh, the 19th century here in Hungary, was not less religious than the orthodox movement. They always say that the, the neolog movement is a, a secular movement. They are, are uh, put the, the Jewish uh, law way and they live the way of, of uh, assimilated or secular life. It's not true. The main difference between the Orthodox and the Neolog, in, in very, very short words, that the Neolog movement opened its gates. They entered to the non-Jewish world and they let the non-Jewish world to enter into Judaism. What do I mean? Uh, at that time, the Orthodox uh, community learned religious studies, rabbinical studies. Uh, they didn't learn mathematics or, or history or geography and so on and so on. They didn't uh, took part in uh, the normal everyday life, the, the, the non-Jewish life. Uh, they, they didn't uh, involved in to the, the Hungarian uh, life. But the neolog, they said that we are Hungarians and we are Jews. Uh, our religion is Jewish, our nationality is, is uh, Hungarian. So they took part in uh, all, all the, the part of, of the Hungarian society. They learned not only religious studies, they, they learned mathematics, geography, and so on and so on. They started to, to work as uh, non-religious professionals, uh, writers, actors, miners, and so on and so on. So they took part in the everyday life of the Hungarian society. And uh, mainly they had a, a countrywide organization. The Orthodox, they didn't have it. The Hungarians, the, the Neolog movement said that we want to be organized in the, in the countrywide. They established the rabbinical seminary, which was uh, the first of its kind here in Hungary. It was a Neolog one. So there are so many differences but they are not uh, religious differences. They are civil differences and, and spiritual differences. By opening the doors both ways from the Jewish community to Hungarian society and vice versa, doesn't that also risk assimilation and the gradual loss of the Jewish community? Well, it led to the assimilation, of course, of course. Uh, opening the gates are temptations, temptations. And so many uh, Jewish boys and girls were lost, if I may use this word, to, to Judaism. They, they were converted to, to uh, uh, Christianity or, or they uh, married mixed marriages and they left the Judaism behind because of uh, their mixed marriages. So that's why I say they were lost to, to the Judaism. Of course, it's a great loss. But let's see the other uh, face of it. So many non-Jewish uh, persons converted to, to Judaism during uh, the, the time from, uh, say, 1860 until uh, the World War II. We have so many uh, converted Jews who were converted to Judaism. There are great winnings. It's interesting. I was unaware of that in Hungary. It was, I don't want to say that it was a, it was a fashion or it was a, a style, <laughs> but, but there were. Fad, yes. <laughs> so, it's, it's the same, you know, if, if someone wanted uh, to get married, 
to a non-Jewish boy, uh, they converted to Christianity. But if someone wanted to marry to a Jewish boy, she converted to Judaism. So it it's, uh, went to both ways. You mentioned countrywide organizations being linked to the neolog movement. And talking about this, um, we need to also talk about Mojihis because its predecessor was created under the communist um, regime with the, with the purpose of representing all of the Hungarian Jews. So how does Mojihis fulfill this role today? Okay, let's, let's go a little bit further. Not stand in the 40 years of so-called communism. <clears throat> the original predecessor of uh, Mojihis was uh, founded at the end of the 19th century which called Orsago Shiroda, the, the countrywide office. National Bureau. National Bureau, yeah, thank you. Uh, it was only a neolog uh, organization. It's true that in the 50s, beginning of the 50s, the 1950s, the government forced the Jewish communities to form a one and only organization which was a, an umbrella organization, which uh, consisted of the two major uh, faith groups, Jewish faith groups, the Orthodox and the Neolog together. It was a forced marriage, of course, it was a forced marriage. But after the political changes, and this is uh, which, what is interesting, after the political changes, when there was the opportunity to separate their ways, the Orthodox didn't leave. And the Neolog movement didn't say the Orthodox that Okay, the doors open, go. They could live uh, in, in friendship, so-called friendship together. Uh, you know, there was, of course, there were basic differences between uh, the, the way of life of the Orthodox and the way of life of the Neolog, of course. And there was always, uh, there was discussions and, and uh, fights uh, between uh, these two faith groups, but they could live, they could manage it. Uh, until I think uh, 2013 or 14, something like this, when uh, the Orthodox community said that, okay, we, we leave this marriage and we want a divorce. And so they uh, left the Majihis. During that, that time that they were together, they could manage. There was always, I say, and I, I repeat, always there were fights. But this is life. Uh, we fight each other. There were fights, but there were uh, compromises, so they could uh, go on in friendship. Many, or I should say, rather, some observers think that Mujahid today is is um, resembles more of a civic than a religious organization. I'm talking about present circumstances, of course. Do you agree with this view? Uh, listen, the Mujahid, officially, the Mujahid is one of uh, the Hungarian Jewish uh, churches, faith groups. It's a faith group. And the, the main character of a faith group is that it's religious. Uh, everything you need to live a religious life here in Hungary. Uh, if you want to go to the synagogue every evening, every morning, if you want to keep kosher, if you want to keep uh, the Shabbos or, or uh, the holidays, you can do it under the Neolog uh, Aegis. You can do it. It uh, fulfills its mission 
as a, as a faith group. It's not less religious than uh, the Orthodox or the Chabad. So during the 19th century, Hungary had an assimilationist policy with regard to the Jews. The Neologues largely did assimilate into Hungarian society. In your view, is assimilation a threat to the Jews today? I distinguish uh, between two words, assimilation or integration. The so-called assimilated Jews in the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, according to my opinion, they were integrated, not assimilated. Like myself, I speak Hungarian. I own the Hungarian culture. Uh, Everything uh, in my life happens in Hungary. I live in Hungary. I, I have my children here in Hungary. So uh, I'm a member of the Hungarian society, but I'm an integrated part of the Hungarian society. I'm a Jew. Uh, I keep my Jewish roots. I, I go to the synagogue every morning, every evening. I pray Hebrew. I, I keep kosher. I keep the, the Jewish uh, law. So. That's what I am, was the so-called assimilated Jew, as I think, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Nowadays, nowadays, the Jews are assimilated. Uh, what is the difference? The difference is that uh, the assimilated Jews forgot about their Jewish roots. Uh, they leave the Jewishness behind. They say that, okay, I'm a Jew. But that's all. Why are you a Jew? Because I'm a Jew. I feel as a Jew. I have a, a, my cultural roots as a Jew. I, I have Jewish parents. That's why I'm a Jew, so, and so on and so on. My identity is Jewish. But besides this, he or she doesn't keep anything which keeps him or her to be Jewish. This really gets into the next question that I had, which will go deeper into this idea of assimilation. In Hungary now, there are between 40 and 100,000 Jews, according to who's doing the counting and who's being counted and why, why the count is taking place. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go into that part. I believe the static, uh, statistics, which I fake myself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And there's always a reason. Uh, the synagogues, the, uh, the neologue synagogues in particular, seem to be largely empty. Um, uh, in during the Shabbat and at any virtually any time except the high holidays, and it leads back to this question of assimilation because in Hungary assimilation took a somewhat different character because of the Holocaust in in recent years because of the Holocaust and the communist era. It wasn't unusual as we did this research to talk to people who are now Jewish leaders who weren't aware they were even Jewish until late teenage early twenties. So that's that's a very deep form of assimilation for a lot of historical reasons. And it goes into a much larger kind of debate within the Jewish community about assimilation. That assimilation is in fact the, or so I have heard, the greatest actual enemy of the Jewish people now. It's not anti-Semitism. It's much more the fact that Jews simply leave the culture and forget about it. Certainly intermarriage is a part, but it goes deeper than that. It's simply they're unaffiliated, and most Jews in Hungary are in fact unaffiliated. They're neither neologue nor orthodox. They simply exist out there and have very little contact with the Jewish community. 
So I guess it's a two-part question. Um, is assimilation really such a great enemy? And in the Hungarian context, what can be done about it? Well, uh, I think that your analysis is correct. <laughs> that's that's a relief because Rabbi Oberlander said all the analyses were wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, but let me add that uh, sometime you know, I uh, I visit the Orthodox synagogue on Friday evening or Saturday morning after the the service in my synagogue. This is empty too. So not the only the Orthodox only the Neolog synagogues are almost empty on, on uh, a regular by uh, Shabbos, but the Orthodox and the, I dare to say that the Chabad synagogues are empty too on, on the Saturday morning, as far as I know. If I'm wrong, I apologize. But this is my uh, information, what I have. But this is because, because of, of the assimilation. Yeah, yeah, you were correct. Uh, most of the Hungarian Jews nowadays, uh, mainly the, the youth, they do not know anything about their own Jewishness. Uh, it was so in, in the 60s or the, in the 50s or 70s, but then at least there was a grandfather or a grandmother who, who told the, the kid that you are a Jew. Don't publish it, but you are a Jew. Now, the problem is that there is no such a grandfather, grandmother, or, or parents. Because the parents themselves, they don't know that they are Jews. Or they want to hide that they are Jews. They are ashamed, or they do not care, or they are afraid. I don't know all the reasons. But they didn't take, they didn't and do not take part in, in the life of the Jewish community. They do not go to the synagogue. They uh, do not uh, buy Jewish books. Jewish themed books at all, they, they keep a distance uh, from, from Judaism, from their own Jewishness. I, I can understand, of course, why. Uh, they say that, uh, they say that if, if uh, we didn't show that we are Jews, they will not hurt us, uh, we will have no harm, we will live in peace. They are wrong. Of course, they are wrong. Uh, but this is the way of thinking. Okay, uh, be it. The main tragedy is that uh, this way of thinking uh, leads to to the empty synagogues and uh, to the the weakening community that we are witnessing now. In what extent does um, the particularly tragic twentieth uh, century history plays into this? Does Hungarian Jews or the Jewish community still is still being haunted by Holocaust and is this like um, a way to defend itself? Well, uh, the trauma of the Holocaust and the spiritual wounds of the Holocaust are not uh, finished with uh, the Holocaust generation. The second or the third generation keep these wounds and keep uh, this trauma. Uh, there are so many uh, psychological research which uh, says that it, 
it's a burden which uh, is carried by generations so long. And because of this, a Jew who, who was born maybe decades after the Holocaust has the same fear as the survivors have. He has no reason for that, but he has it in, in, uh, in his, uh, his mind, he has it in his uh, blood, in his, in his spirit. It's a, a heritage. And he or she cannot uh, give it away. Does the military and political, to a degree, political success of Israel help to give more of a sense of Jewish pride to Hungarian Jews? Well, uh, I remember when I was young, it was the Yom Kippur War. 73. Yeah, 73. I was a kid then. Uh, but I remember that uh, our friends, Jewish friends, they talked about it in uh, whispering that we are winning, we are winning. Mm -hmm. But in, in, uh, in public, they had to say that the Israel is the aggressor. This was the fashion. But they were pride, proud, of course, they were proud. Uh, because it was forbidden uh, to stand for Israel. After the political changes, it changed too. Like all the Jewish things, to be a Jew during the so-called communist regime was a forbidden fruit. It was forbidden. Uh, to learn Jewish studies, uh, except of uh, the rabbinical seminary or the Jewish secondary school, it was forbidden. Uh, to, to talk about Israel in a, a friendly company, it was forbidden, it's called Zionism. You were uh, harassed by that. But after the political changes, it was free. It became legal to stand for Israel, to talk about Judaism, to learn about Israel, to learn about uh, uh, Judaism itself. And it lost that forbidden fruit feeling. You understand what I mean? And it was natural. So when you were proud of, of uh, the victory of Israel, when you were proud of, of uh, your relatives who fought in the wars of Israel during the, the so-called uh, communist regime, it was a form of uh, objection, a form of, of uh, was it being in opposite of the, the regime. But if it's, if it's free, you are not an opposite. It's, it's not forbidden. Anyone can, uh, can have it. So it, it lost the, the magic, you know. Uh, of course, there are Zionist uh, Jews here in Hungary. They are uh, connected many, many ways uh, to Israel. They are proud of Israel, to the success of Israel. Uh, they have relatives in Israel. Maybe they themselves uh, go to Israel. But to the the... Uh, majority of the Hungarian Jews, Israel is, is another country, which is uh, the country of the Jews, but we have our own problems and our successes. Israel has its own problems and its uh, own successes. We are not so much connected uh, this, uh, this way. It's more problematized today. I remember 67 among Jews in the West. There was this huge upswelling of pride. It was, it was stunning. And within Israel, it was messianic in some ways. 
And since then, there has been a turning inward in many ways that it's become not simply anti-Zionist, but much much more there are so many problems there, and Israel is portrayed in such a negative way, sometimes with great justification, um, that that sense uh, in the West, that sense of identification, especially among the young, is melting away. And I'm wondering if that would take place here, because as you say, the so-called communist era really did um, warp politics in many ways, um, retarded in some ways. Well, I, I, I really don't know. Uh, all I know that the so-called communist regime, that's what I, I said, uh, so-called communist never was a communist regime. It was a socialist regime. That was going to be my last question for this segment. <laughs> <laughs> how, how is it so-called? <laughs> uh, our goal was uh, to reach the communism and we, we built it, the so- socialism, and the end of the socialism will be the communism. That's uh, Every kid learned it in the school. It's very learned. <laughs> they didn't use that. No one know. knew what's the difference between socialism and communism, but... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that, uh, that time, uh, the, the Western world, pro-Israel, as far as I, I know and I remember, but it was not because of Israel itself. It was because of uh, the Soviet Union and the socialist bloc was against Israel. So the interest of the West was against the interest of of, uh, the East. Now, it's a little bit different. Uh, When when you uh, take a look at the politics of the world, you see that even the West was the supporter of Israel. Now they are uh, much more critical with Israel than they were, say, 40 years ago or 30 years ago, because the Eastern Bloc has gone. And now the the relationship between the former Eastern Bloc and Israel is different than it was 40 years ago. So it's it's, uh, very, very hard to to say that uh, Israel in the world it's good or bad. It depends on, on, uh, on the political era and the political environment you talk about Israel. Maybe just a quick follow-up on that. Uh, Mani says, says that because of the so many people critic the Israeli government or the Israel, Israel in general, do you think that is true that anti-Zionism is the new form of anti-Semitism? Maybe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. Five on Israel, I still have another question. Does the Majihis, uh has a fruitful and formal uh, relationship with the state of Israel in, in any forms? And uh, also, do many Hungarians or is, uh, still leave for Israel? Or is there a tendency among Hungarian Jews to leave for Israel as, as it was in the uh, early 90s, for example? Well, the Majihis has good connections uh, with Israel. Uh, let me remind you that when uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was a prime minister and he was here in Hungary, uh, he and uh, Prime Minister Orban made a rendezvous in the Doha Street Synagogue uh, together. So uh, it showed the good connections between the Majihis and, and uh, the state of Israel. And uh, since then, we have formal and informal 
connections with uh, Israel, with the, the Netanyahu uh, uh, administration and with the new administration also. Uh, I, I, I cannot say this with uh, the rabbinate of Israel. The former rabbinate of Israel, when uh, Rabbi Lau was uh, the Ashkenaz chief rabbi of, of Israel, not this Lau, the father of him, we have a great connection with him. He was a, a great guy. Now, the uh, Lau Junior, uh, I, I don't want to say that we have no connection with him at all, but we have no connection with him at all. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the issue with Rabbi Kuch and his son, Zvi Yehuda. And, but that, that goes way farther than we're going. Let me close this section by following that up a little bit, because the head of uh, Mazahis, who is Andras Heisler, has complained publicly that they are be that Mojahis is actually being cut out from relations between Hungary and Israel. And in fact, they're never they, they aren't they're no longer even invited to meetings between the um, Hungarian government and visiting Israeli officials or religious figures. Is there some truth to this or is this Ask him. something I don't else? know. Ask him. That's a very good answer. <laughs> I hope we will if he comes. This is an honest answer. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed, thank uh, you. But let me, let me uh, finish the answer for uh, the, the former question. There was uh, never a great uh, aliyah from Hungary to Israel. Uh, after the political changes, Israel hoped for a great immigration from, from Hungary. And it was a false hope. It was a false hope. It's, it's not like a Star Wars, a new hope. There's no new hope. <laughs> uh, the Hungarian Jews, of course, there are immigrants, Hungarian immigrants in Israel who, who made an aliyah from, uh, from Hungary during the last uh, 30 years. But it's not such a great number as it was uh, like from the former Soviet Union or, or from uh, Eastern countries. I'm told that there's been a kind of reverse aliyah, in fact, that um, Israeli Jews of Hungarian origin are actually coming back, yep. Yep. finding it a safer, more stable, and much more pleasant way to live. And so many Israelis come here, or, or Hungary or, or Europe, they leave Israel for Europe, mm -hmm. because it's, it's safer here, they can do business here, better business here. So, listen, Israel is, is a, a modern society with all his uh, problems and all his uh, advantages. It's like, like any other country in the world. Well, save that the military requirement goes up to age 50. <laughs> that is nobody's idea of fun. I remember, you know, uh, 20 years ago, it was a shame if someone didn't join to the IDF. Now, it, it turned, it turned. So, yeah, you didn't join it, okay. Let's move on. Yeah, the the idea of going to for young people going to Europe for a while, to and specifically to avoid that, they simply don't want to be involved in it. It's interesting. So thank you so much for answering all our questions. Thank you. Stay tuned for the continuation of our discussion with Rabbi Froelich. <laughs>